few cities have had as rich of a history of resilience as New Bedford, Massachusetts. In the early decades of American history, whaling in New England was a highly profitable industry. But the Revolutionary War soon brought the trade to a halt. New Bedford's whaling industry rebuilt, and was known worldwide as the young nation's dominant port. The city's 19th century economy hinged on whaling. New Bedford ships traveled the world, bringing back oil, ambergris, and other lucrative whale products. By 1857, New Bedford was the richest city per capita in the world. But just years later, the discovery of petroleum and the consequences of the Civil War led to the collapse of the whaling industry in New Bedford. So, the economy shifted to textiles, giving rise to an even grander era of wealth in the city. Nowadays, New Bedford's economic focus has shifted once more. The city's home to the number one fishing port in the United States, in terms of dollar value and landings. New Bedford has adapted time and time again to new challenges throughout its history. And today, facing the threats of rising seas, more intense climate, and increased flooding, New Bedford's resilient character is being called to action once more. I'm Kyle Gray, and welcome back to the Leadership Exchange Podcast. With this episode on New Bedford, we close out our theme of resilience that spanned the last three episodes. We've heard from Annapolis, Maryland, and Hoboken, New Jersey about their resilience projects and plans. And soon, we'll hear from New Bedford as well. On November 4th, the SNEP Network will be bringing all of our resilience communities together for the Leadership Exchange webinar with Wareham, Massachusetts. To register for our November 4th event, please visit snepnetwork.org training and events. That link's also in this podcast description. For more information on the Leadership Exchange series, tune back to episode zero. And be sure to catch up with episodes two and three before joining us on November 4th to make the most of this exciting resilience webinar. The city of New Bedford is located in southeastern Massachusetts on Buzzards Bay. With a population of more than 95,000, New Bedford is the sixth largest city in Massachusetts and the fourth largest metro area. In terms of demographic data, the city is diverse and consists of several designated environmental justice communities. About 20% of residents identify as Hispanic or Latino, 7% as Black or African American, and 5% as two or more races. A quarter of the city has less than a high school diploma, and nearly 80% does not have education beyond a bachelor's degree. Median household income is $44,000. That's 57% of the state median and 73% of the national median. More than a fifth of New Bedford lives in poverty. That's twice the state and national rate. And more than one-third of residents speak a language other than English at home. And a fifth of residents are foreign-born. As we heard earlier, New Bedford's fishing port is the most profitable in the country. And the city also sees a growing tourism sector. But environmental hazards pose risks to the livelihoods of fishers and business owners, as well as the stability of these industries. The port of New Bedford could see two and a half feet of sea level rise by 2050 causing dramatic impacts on what is currently the backbone of the economy. And with a diverse population, marginalized communities are more vulnerable to climate impacts. In 2018, the city was awarded $165,000 from the Massachusetts Municipal Vulnerabilities Program, or MVP, for the creation of a climate action plan to comprehensively address resilience. New Bedford's MB Resilient Plan aims to tackle resilience in a way that addresses social, economic, and environmental components of its vulnerabilities. The NB Resilient Plan is a dynamic document. It changes over time, and its progress is regularly updated on the city's online dashboard. 
you can access that dashboard at nbresilient.com dashboard. The city's director of environmental stewardship, Michelle Paul, played an integral role into the development of the resilience plan. Michelle joined the city in 2012. Prior to her role as director of environmental stewardship, she spent 30 years in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. Her background is in brownfield remediation and redevelopment, especially in environmental justice communities. Michelle is president of the Licensed Site Professional Association, serves on Mass Development's Brownfield Advisory Board, the Department of Environmental Protection's Waste Site Cleanup Advisory Committee, and the Massachusetts Municipal Association's Environmental Policy Committee. Michelle's work in New Bedford has consisted of leading the Riverwalk Project, developing marine education programs for bilingual residents, and evaluating and planning for climate vulnerabilities. Michelle was also recently awarded the 2020 Merit Award by EPA Region 1. In this episode, network partner Joanne Throw sits down with Michelle Paul to discuss how the city was driven to address resilience and how it integrates resilience into multiple sectors. So first of all, I really do want to know more about your overall, your resilience planning. So, you know, talk about what, what started all of this, you know, lay the groundwork for us. And then I want you to talk about some of your vulnerabilities um, that really did spark this climate uh, resilience planning. And I read through uh, some of your, your reports and, oh my goodness, it is just so impressive what you've done so far. So can you address some of the vulnerabilities in the planning process? Sure. I mean, obviously, as a a coastal community, we're very vulnerable to the impacts of of climate change. And Mayor John Mitchell has certainly recognized that and um, made that a priority. My my initial um, focus when I came to New Bedford was really brownfields redevelopment. That's that's my, my background is um, soil and groundwater site assessment and ha- hazardous waste management. Um, but we really thought that um, resilience and climate change really fit well into, um, into that category. So it's really been an expansion of, of my role in the city. Um, and, and obviously, as, you know, as a coastal community with um, older industrial uses along our waterfront and the fact that our waterfront is a Superfund site, um, we realize that we have already um, been impacted by by climate and and by extreme weather events. Um, one of the biggest vulnerabilities is storm surge from hurricanes. We've been um, historically battered by you know Hurricane Carol and the um, hurricane of of fifty eight. So um, the Army Corps of Engineers back in the sixties built our hurricane barrier, which is which is fantastic. Um, and so that is really one of our strengths. Um, but by the same token, we need to make sure that that remains effective. So uh, we've started to um, to look at the vulnerability of our of our port, a de- designated port area. We're working with the town of Fairhaven because obviously, you know, you can't um, you can't look at a port and only look at one side. Um, so we're working with Fairhaven um, on port vo- vulnerability, and we're working to engage the Army Corps um, to take a look at, um, you know, the, the barrier and whether it is still as effective as it was, and will it be effective in the future? Um, so we want to make sure that we maintain that because obviously it's only as good as um, as the the maintenance upkeep. Um, another vulnerability is our 
uh, uh, fishing economy and um, very vulnerable to uh, the impacts of climate change due to species migration because of uh, ocean warming, changing currents, regulatory constraints, ocean acidification. Um, but one of the strengths is we are the number one fishing port in the nation for the past 20 years. And we can leverage this economic strength to assemble expertise to develop strategies to address these challenges. Um, we're home to UMass Dartmouth School for Marine Science and Technology, or SMAS. And we've had discussions with maritime industry stakeholders, regulators, um, SMAS and other, um, other research um, groups to begin to develop new ways to conduct business in a, in a sustainable way. Um, you know, it's very hard for the fishing industry with their permits that specify where they can, where they can't fish, what they can fish for in certain areas at certain times. And as species migrate, uh, they're not reading those permits. So we need to work with the regulators to make a more, um, you know, a more fluid process that works for, for the, the, the industry. Um, another vulnerability is sea level rise. Now we've got a great hurricane barrier if we have a hurricane, but sea level rise, that's not something that the hurricane barrier was, was built to deal with. It actually has been closed several times during high tide, but that's not what it's made for. And that keeps our fishing boats from being able to, um, you know, have free, you know, un unfettered access to the, to the poor and to, you know, to their fishing ground. So we can't be closing the hurricane barrier twice a day at, at high tide. Um, so we've been working with, um, uh, the state has uh, supported the development of updated modeling to address sea level rise in coastal communities, um, including the commissioning of the Massachusetts Coastal Flood Risk Model to evaluate liabilities such as shoreline hazardous waste sites and assets like the working waterfront and, and beaches. So we are looking at those updated models um, to be able to really pinpoint our, our vulnerabilities and to be able to, to plan for that. So Michelle, I want to talk specifically about your river walk along Bushnet mm -hmm. uh, River and describe a little bit about what's happened there. And um, just for those listening in on this podcast, uh, lay the groundwork for how that's redeveloped. Huh. So river walk, I could probably talk for hours about it. It's it's quite a chicken and egg project right now because. We want to get it done as quickly as possible. Our um, our harbor has, or, or the the shoreline has, really been inaccessible to our residents for for many years now. Um, and we we want to build it yesterday, but we've got to wait until um, EPA is done with their intertidal cleanup so that we can proceed. Um, we need to do a lot of permitting uh, to get the project off the ground but we don't have our kind of our existing conditions set yet because we're waiting for EPA to complete the cleanup. So we keep, you know, waiting for this, but the overall vision is to have riparian restoration, habitat restoration along um, the upper Christian river from where market basket is from uh, where 195 and, and Cogsell, um cross the river. Uh, northward up to um, as close to Wood Street and you know as, as far north as uh, as possible um, and it's going to be a great um, 
again, a great habitat restoration, um, and it's going to be a great amenity for the residents and for employees along the Riverwalk to be able to just enjoy the resource that they've really been blocked off from for so long. Um, so we're really excited to get going on it, but it's, we're just in this, you know, we're kind of in the starting gate and we've been there for a while and I think we'll be there for, for a little bit longer, but we are working um, with the state, the, um, the Gateway City Parks program um, to get some of those early conceptual plans and permitting strategies done. Well, so all of this takes community buy-in and support. So mm -hmm. can you explain a little bit more how you gain that support and for all of these revitalization efforts? I mean, it must have been uh, quite an organized effort. So describe that a little bit for me. Sure. Well, I came into the city eight years ago, and the Upper, um, upper Harbor um, Revitalization Plan had actually already been done, and it was really a community-based effort, community-led effort, and one of the things that people wanted to see was a river walk. Um, so that, those, you know, that groundwork was really laid before, before I came on. We've actually already built two projects on the hurricane barrier, um, because even though the hurricane barrier is, is a great um, safety and security asset, um, it also blocks off the view of the beautiful harbor from people that live right right next to it. Um, so uh, the mayor had decided to build two walkways on top of the hurricane barrier called Cove Walk and um, Harbor Walk. And so people can already walk or bike um, on top of the hurricane barrier. So, so people already see what Riverwalk can be. It'll be different because it won't be on the hurricane barrier, but they already wanted this. Um, but some of the challenges that lie ahead are getting the actual easements from the property owners. Most of the property owners are on board with the concept, but you can't really get the, those legal easements until you know exactly what the project's going to look like. And you don't know exactly what the project's going to look like until you've got the permitting ready. So, you know, again, we're kind of like a chicken and the egg, but um, but most of the of the um, of the property owners have bought into the Riverwalk concept. Um, the residential um, mills that were redeveloped, all of the residents, you know, they they want it built yesterday. Um, they they love the idea, and the um, the businesses that you know that are still active along the waterfront are excited to have an amenity for their employees. You know, it's a uh, it just, it, it makes going to work and being able to walk, you know, the harbor at lunchtime or break time or whatever, um, it just, you know, makes makes going to work more more pleasurable. So you have so much going on in the areas of, you know, your social, environmental, economic resilience planning efforts, and you have uh, worked closely with the um, environmental justice communities. So how are you integrating all of this um, with dealing with some of your hazards? We've kind of done some, um, you know, not, not just like shoring up the, the shorelines and looking at physical vulnerabilities, but also um, on, on the social side, um, we enacted NB Alert, um, which is a 
um, a phone notification system, and it's available in English, Spanish, Spanish and Portuguese um, citywide, so we can issue weather alerts um, and other hazards um, you know, on a, on a citywide basis, but we can also target specific neighborhoods if there's some kind of a lockdown or if there's some kind of a localized hazard, um, such as a fire. Um, you know, we can we can notify specific neighborhoods. So um, we have we have enacted that, and we've tried to get the word out. Um, people can sign up online. Um, we've tried to get the word out to a lot of the community-based organizations that we work with, like um, CEDC or the C um, Community Economic Development Center, um, Coastline Elder Services, um, our um, Council on on Aging. You know, trying to get the word out to those communities that would really be the most the, the most vulnerable and the most in need of of these um these notifications we've also been working with um community-based organizations and in particular with cedc um to support resilience hubs um in a, 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 a conference that i had gone to a few years ago um the director of the urban sustainability directors network was talking about this idea of resilience hubs and it's basically it's meeting people where they are. Um, a lot of folks do, do not, in the event of, of an emergency, they don't want to go to a shelter. They don't feel like they belong there. They don't, it's, it's just not something that's, that's um, familiar to them. Um, so what we've been, or what Baltimore started to do was have these community-led, community-owned resilience hubs that are really, they're different in every community. It's based on what each community wants and needs. Um, but the idea is to be able to not just have these things in the event of an emergency, but to have them as um, like C, uh, CEDC wants to create a resilience hub. They're, they're expanding their, their operations. They already provide a lot of resilient services, um, uh, tax preparation, entrepreneurial advice, um, to the immigrant community. So they want to expand on that so they can, so that, you know, before an emergency, people can learn to be more resilient through English as a, um, a second language class, uh, learning to cook healthy meals, parenting classes, all of those types of things that just make individuals and communities stronger. Um, and then if they were able to say have a commercial kitchen or have renewable power with battery backup, then during an emergency, now you can kind of have a you know a little bit of a shelter. You, you don't want to it does it doesn't take the place of emergency sh shelters, but if the power is out, you can go and charge your phone. You can have a hot meal if you if you don't have the capacity to cook at home once the power goes out. And then you know later on after an emergency, people can just kind of gather at that place to make sure everybody's okay. You know can can neighbors help neighbors? Um, has uh, have people that are homebound? You know have they been checked on? Um, maybe there's a, a tool lending library, kind of a, a lending library, where people who might live in tenements but can't wait for their landlords to do some kind of emergency fix, they can. They can borrow tools. I mean, a lot of people that live in tenements don't own their own homes. They don't have a big toolbox, but, you know, they might need the occasional, you know, hammer, screwdriver, wrench, uh, all of those things. So we're looking at um, supporting those resilience hubs as far as we've done a, a, a feasibility study for, for two resilience hubs, and it will enable each community-based organization to 
go to different funding. So it's probably going to be a conglomerate of many different funding sources from different organizations, philanthropic, whatever. Um, but that way they can kind of put these things together. And since it's not city run and, and city led, then they've got more flexibility to do what they need in their individual community. And the city can concentrate on those official emergency shelters without, um, you know, but, but knowing that each community kind of has, has its own area and, and people are taking care of their own. Um, so that's, that's been a really interesting um, project to, to work on. Um, we're trying to uh, increase our, our street trees to minimize heat island effects, especially in the areas where you do have those older tenement housing and um, people might not be able to afford AC or the structure might just be so old that it's not, um, you can't put in window ACs. Um, so we want to uh, integrate green infrastructure wherever possible so that we can manage stormwater volume and quality of, of stormwater. Um, and another project that we have is our environmental workforce job training um, grant. We got a grant from EPA, $200,000 to train underemployed and unemployed um, folks in um, jobs, local jobs that are um, based in the environment and renewable energy. Uh, so we're working with Mass Hire um, and other, you know, other different community groups, Bristol Community College, um, to put together um, a list of courses that folks can, you know, we're thinking of like four different um, tracks, you know, maybe um, marine marine industry tracks or um, uh, uh, in, uh, in industrial health and safety. Um, so we're looking at trying to attract people in um, to focus on one of those tracks and to become trained and then uh, mass hire will work on job placement. So those are just a few examples of um, resilience on the more social economic side than just our infrastructure. Well, there's so much going on, and uh, but I want to shift gears towards my favorite topic, which is climate uh, finance. And so mm -hmm. let me ask you a little bit more about your approach to financing resilience projects. So how do you incentivize outside investment? How are you doing all of this? You mentioned grants, but uh, mm -hmm. maybe it has to be beyond grants. So talk a little bit about that. Hmm. Um, well, most, most of our work really is, um, is based on grants. All, the, all of the work in my department is, is really um, grant driven. Uh, so I'm constantly looking for, um, you know, I, I'll have a list of projects and I'm constantly looking for different funding opportunities and how, how we can fit um, each project. So sometimes it's, it's a couple of different grants that we have to put together. Um, so we, you know, try to get really creative with that. But, you know, we've been working through the uh, Massachusetts Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program, or, or MVP, um, the Coastal Zone Management, the Coastal Resilience Program. Massachusetts Dam and Seawell programs, um, EPA Brownfields grants. Right now, we have we have four EPA grants. We have a cleanup grant, an assessment grant, the um, environmental uh, workforce job training grant, and we also have a Brownfield Revolving Loan Fund grant that um, has just been capitalized. We're we're just, uh, as a matter of fact, I have to have a, 
a, a kickoff meeting with 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 EPA to um, to really um, become familiar with what, what other people have been able to do with this. But it's basically it's an eight hundred thousand um, dollar seed fund that we will have to work with our economic development council so that when folks come in and they want to um, redevelop a property that might have environmental conditions we have the money available at low or no interest so that they can deal with the environmental issues and that it doesn't become a, a, a deal breaker for for redevelopment we've got a lot of brownfields along our waterfront and we want to revitalize the waterfront and really the only way to do that is to um, you know to try to mitigate those those extra costs brought about by um, you know by environmental con uh, con conditions. Um, we don't have any official in incentive program um, for resilience, but what we're trying to do is lead by example. Um, you know, if if we're putting if we're getting these grants. And we're putting this money into these resilience initiatives. We certainly expect our businesses to be doing their part. So we try to um, create tools that can help them be resilient, you know, on on a, on a private level. Um, through our MVP work, we've developed a business resilience toolkit um, that kind of lays out um, how to have business um, business continuity because we all know that. Small businesses will shut down if they are out of, you know, out of business for for a period of time due to power loss or, you know, a pandemic. Um, so we've already seen this stuff happen. Um, so it really focuses on um, the different resources available through, you know, the state, federal, um, you know, other or organizations that can help businesses um, become more resilient. Um, we've also, we were, through that work with Fairhaven um, for port resilience, we developed a port design guideline so that people that are building on the waterfront understand, you know, don't just build for today, but look at that, that Massachusetts coastal flood risk model. And if you're building a building that is going to be, uh, has a high degree of criticality and you need it to, you know, exist for the next hundred years, then you better be looking at the sea level sea level rise projections and your flood elevations, um, you know, adjust accordingly, uh, so that everybody has that that information. We also developed a, a maritime business toolkit so that it's kind of you know in in addition to the regular business toolkit, um, there are a lot of resources that are available for um, the maritime industry uh, stakeholders. So we've also Develop that and 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 made that available, um, but we we you know we try to get very creative with our um, with our grant um, assemblage I guess if you'd say, um, and that's that's really how we finance a lot of this work. Well, you're mentioning tools and and resources, and I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit more about this online dashboard, this interactive dashboard. So I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. So that um, that came out of NB Resilient, which is our climate uh, action and resilience plan. And um, through that plan, we developed prior, priority actions um, in six different focus areas, you know, including um, climate and energy, uh, utilities and waste, natural resources, economy and jobs, et cetera. Um, and so we came up with priority actions in each of those areas. 
And what we've done is we've kind of explained those focus areas, um, the different initiatives that the city is taking and how people can take their own action. What can they do to be involved? Um, and there, there's, there's a lot there. Um, so people don't have to take every action in every focus area, but if they find something that they're passionate about, that's, that's when they can, you know, kind of get involved that way. Um, so, so we've got the, the information on that part of the dashboard. And then on the other part of the dashboard, we've actually taken all of the priority actions in each of the focus areas and put them up there with the status um, you know, what, what we're waiting for, we're we waiting for funding for it. And that way, as we actually complete those actions, we can check them off so that MB Resilient isn't just a book or a plan that's on a shelf. I don't even have a printed copy of it. It's electronic and it's that way for a reason because it'll be different in two years than it was when we developed it a year ago. Um, so we want to keep updating it. We want to take actions off the list as we complete them. Um, maybe a priority action, um, you know, falls a little bit lower in the priorities and we've got, you know, now a new action that we hadn't even thought of before. So that way, we're, you know, we're kind of keeping ourselves accountable to make progress on the priority actions. Um, every time there's a grant out there, we look at those priority actions and say, okay, how can this fit into this grant? Or if we've got this, you know, this grant application, what are the priority actions that can fit here? Can we combine something to make it stronger? Um, so that's really, you know, it's kind of a, a it's a, it's a very um, public facing um, tool and, you know, it gives information, but then for folks who like to see, give me the data, you know, what are you doing? Then we've got that as well. That's excellent. All right. Thank you so much for your time today, and we look forward to you joining our conversation on November 4th. Thanks again to Michelle Paul for sharing some of her resilience work in New Bedford. In New Bedford, we see a city that's committed to mitigating environmental vulnerabilities while addressing systemic inequities and bolstering a robust economic industry. So that wraps up our theme of resilience ahead of our November 4th webinar with our case study communities in Wareham, Massachusetts. We hope you'll join us on November 4th from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern for a conversation with Annapolis, Hoboken, and New Bedford about their resilience planning and how their lessons can be applied to communities across the region and the country. To register for the webinar, visit snepnetwork.org training and events. Next month, we shift gears a bit to talk about waterfront redevelopment ahead of our December webinar. Wareham's plans for downtown revitalization center around Riverfront Wareham Village. The low-lying area poses environmental concerns, but we also see opportunities for sustainable development, social improvements, and economic growth. Next month, we'll hear from Chattanooga, Tennessee, Burlington, Vermont, and Boston, Massachusetts about how waterfront redevelopment has revitalized their cities. For a full list of events in this leadership exchange, visit snepnetwork.org leadership exchange. And for more information, listen back to our introductory episode zero. Finally, I hope you can take a moment to rate this podcast and leave a review. Even more importantly, though, make sure you subscribe to keep up with new episodes and spread the word to colleagues, friends, and family. I hope you'll join us on November 4th. Until next time, I'm Kyle Gray, and this is the Leadership Exchange Podcast.